Hi, welcome to the Ship It podcast. I'm your guest host, Keegan Sands, standing in for Brandon. This is another origin story. I'm here today with Tiffany Pereira. She is the head of the Rocket Insights QA practice. Does that that sound right? It did. It did. Yeah, you were you were the first. You were a, a pioneer at Rocket, right? Yeah. You have been at Rocket, I think, a little longer than I have. So I've been just over a year now. Yes. I started mid-June of 2019. So it's like a year and change. So my first question is, like, how did you get started? Because I'm sure like, at school, you go to college and, and there's no like, you know, there's a computer science program. Is Are there QA programs there? Like, how did you get into this? So when I was going to school, I actually started off as an English major. And I took a computer science course to fill a, a liberal arts requirement for my school. And the professor convinced me to switch my major. And so I was intent on being a developer, went to school for it. And, and they don't have QA per se as a discipline. So I took this and I got a co-op at IBM. And I interviewed, told, was told I didn't get it. So I proceeded with my backup plan, which is to go study abroad in Japan for the, for a part of the summer. And the night before I leave, I get an email that I was being offered this co-op at IBM. And I thought, oh, well, I can't. But I emailed them and I said, well, I can't start until whatever time I can't, was coming back. And they're like, no, that's fine. So I, I start and I went to an all-hands meeting and someone made a joke about the co-op that didn't show up. So yours truly got the job because the first person that was offered the job didn't show up. It turned out it was a QA co-op. So I started there and I started doing like globalization or localization testing as it's also known. And I kind of fell in love, which sounds weird because I don't know that a lot of people might say that about QA, but I completed my internship and then I asked, can I just continue? Can I stay? And so they let me stay through the school year, and then I just converted, and I, I've been doing it ever since. So it was an accident. An accident. <laughs> it was serendipity, as they might say. Yeah, I think that's a better word for it. So you were doing localization, globalization? Was it like a web app? Was it a mobile app? I forget the name of it, but it was essentially like a plugin, if you will, for Lotus Notes and all the Notes apps that came, that were related to it, because it was IBM. It was mostly legacy users at that point. There were a lot of people that were moving away from from that application. And it was accessibility testing, globalization testing, and it was all, all manual until I think I had been there about a year. And then I went and did automation full-time. And then what happens at a lot of companies, they were up against a deadline and they didn't have enough testing resources, so they pulled me off of automation and put me back into manual testing. And I've kind of just hopped around doing one or the other for several years until I kind of settled back into organization startups that were doing mostly manual testing because they didn't want to make the investment in automation at the time when I was working there. Everyone has the dream of automate. We're going to do automated testing. We're going to bring in all these quality engineers. And then it's a lot of work. It's a big investment. It's a big upfront investment. Yeah. So you stayed at IBM after your, after college, after the co-op? Yep. I stayed at IBM for several years. It's a funny story now, but it wasn't at the time. I bought a condo. I bought, it was my first home purchase. And I got the first mortgage bill on a Thursday. And the following Tuesday, they informed me that I was being laid off. <laughs> I 
can laugh about this now, but at the time, I did not find it all that funny. And then I moved to a company called Constant Contact, and I hopped around a little bit. The next longest job was Rulala. I was there for three plus years, I think. Then it was a series of startups until the last startup was acquired by a big company. It was very sort of corporatized and wasn't my cup of tea. And I ran into AG at a store, at a restaurant, actually. We were both there getting takeout. No words were exchanged. It was simply a wave. And I get an email from her a couple days later. It's like, so we're looking for QA. I don't know if you know anyone. And I said, I do. Me. I'm looking. (laughs) We chatted. And here you are. Yeah. So that's a big jump from like a big IBM to like little Rulala. They've expanded. They bought Gilt, which was a big, big deal. Because when I was there, there was talk that Gilt was going to buy Rue. And then a few years after I left, the opposite happened. And so they're still kicking it over in um, on A Street in Southie. It seems like they're doing really well. That is how AG and I met. And that is how I met Keith, who also works at Rocket. Were there any special perks at Rulala? I think my favorite perk was the sample sales. I got a down comforter once for $10, which I still have. What sort of experience have you had with like mentors? Have you had any really great mentors that like really inspired you? Was it somebody at IBM maybe that set you on the path of really enjoying QA? There are two people that come to mind. At IBM, there was a person that I worked with when I got into automation. And I still say this to this day. When I first started working in that area, he would tell me, he's like, it's, if it's not frozen, you can't skate on it with regards to automation. And I still quote that now, especially when folks want to do UI automation, but they're still changing what the UI looks like. And I think the probably the most influential mentor I've had was someone that I met at Rue. And then I worked for him at another company that was a startup after that. And he definitely, I think for me, he was probably the most influential person in terms of shaping my career because he was the person that got me to really tap into how I look at a problem, how I look at a feature, how I look at a, a user story, just the frame of mind that I walk into something with and think about the questions that I want to ask and think about how I would want to test something to prove that it it's meeting the acceptance criteria or that it's not or that there are some gaps in it that we didn't take into account for. He is probably the most influential person that I've ever worked with. He could be tough to work with though. I remember someone asked me once, what's it like working for him? And I think one of the big, the things I said was, Don't look at how he's delivered a message. Look at the content of the message because the delivery might really suck. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's good that you could pull that out from him, too, that he really knew his stuff. It's just sometimes he was a little sharp around the edges, I guess. That is a lovely way of putting it and very appropriate. He helped you kind of see all the paths, like take, take a step back and kind of look and see like, where what are, what is everybody else missing? Yeah, and also not to look at test cases as sort of the be all end all because I think sometimes people who are testing will look at I need a document, I need a test script, I need something to tell me what to do, and I I'm not saying that there aren't advantages or benefits to test cases, but I don't want something to tell me how to think. I want something to tell me some direction of how something should be working or what kind of behavior I should be expecting to see. But the actual analysis or the thinking, for lack of a better word, I want that to come from me. 
I don't want to miss something because I'm blindly following a step in a test case and just repeating that over and over again because you'll miss things because you're repeating the same thing over and over again. And so if it's been designed to work that way, you're going to say it's great. It's functioning as design. But like what happens if you deviate from those steps or if you try something that someone might accidentally do if they press the wrong button or, or they put something in there they're not supposed to put in there, something of that nature. And writing a test case that tells you exactly what to do word for word, like you're taking away all of the, all the cognitive thinking that makes QA special. And because most developers are really ambitious, they probably read all the test cases and they probably worked through all of those before they committed even one line of code, right? Sure. Definitely not true. <laughs> What's a test case? I've worked with some developers who get really who do ask and I like to have an open dialogue with them and say, so this is what I'm this is where my head's at in terms of how to best prove that this is functional and isn't going to implode if someone does the wrong thing. And I like to have that feedback because I don't necessarily spend all my time. I'm, I'm not in the code every day. I might look at the PRs and I, or I might look at the fixes or walk through even a fix. I don't know it as well as the developer does. But the developer might not understand the whole landscape as well as I do because I'm trying to understand how all of these features work together and how the app is used as a whole. And so that conversation that can happen, it can yield so much. Sometimes the developer might say, oh, I didn't know you could do that. Or I definitely didn't think of that user scenario. And I might say to them, oh, I didn't know that that, that was a, a risk constraint. I had no idea. And so you think of different ways to test it and they think of different error scenarios to guard against because of that conversation. And I just find it to be supremely helpful and I just like building that open dialogue with developers but some of them are really open to it some of them not so much I actually had <laughs> my first job at IBM I actually had a developer put a comment in a ticket when I asked some questions and he actually wrote the word stupid in reference to me and saved it in the ticket and I kind of think that that's when I decided okay I'm going to prove you wrong and I just dug in my heels and I just went after the all the test effort because I was like oh right? That's what we're going to do. I can be really stubborn and persistent. Um, some people might tell you. You don't have to tell me. I know firsthand. <laughs> he told me, he wrote that. And I remember being really embarrassed because it was like my first job out of college. I was super excited. And that just, that I think that was the turning point for me in realizing like, okay, maybe I, maybe this isn't just my stepping stone for to development. Cause that was my thought when I graduated from school, I'll do this until I can prove that I can be a developer. And at that point, I realized, ooh, there's something here for me. I, I enjoy this part. I enjoyed proving him wrong. Because, in fact, my question was valid for the defect in question. It reminds me of a, um, a quote that I actually pulled for this because I wanted to get your thoughts on it. So there's a developer, Brent Simmons. Um, he has a blog. He was talking about QA and how this respect he had for QA. And he was talking about what makes a good QA person. He, he said, you know, that's what makes a good QA person. The best are macabre figures who delight in torturing developers, but then make up for it with the sick succinctness and precision of their bug reports and it like that's always stuck with me where the people who really like the best qa people are the ones that are just like in your face like oh nope sorry you said you were as good not good but anybody can do that anyone can be a jerk but they give you exactly like i did this and this and this and this is why it happened and here's how and ideally they even say i wonder if it's because of this like I love, I love like that little bit of feedback where it's really important 
when they spend just a little more time. All right, yep, I found the bug. They could do that. Or they could be like, all right, I found the bug. Hmm, can I try to figure out a little bit to give a little bit of a clue as to what's going on? And that's huge. And I think that was perfectly captured by his post there. I love digging into a problem. When I find something isn't working the way that I expect, but it's not It's not an obvious unexpected behavior. It's not an obvious error. I love digging into that. Like I will comb logs. I will go through and I will look through if it's in the browser, the network tab and start looking in the console. I, I love doing that stuff. And I love coming back and saying, so this isn't working. And for the following reasons, and this is what I found, I think it's because of this. And I like, it's just, I get a high off of this is as nerdy or as goofy as that sounds. It makes me immensely happy. I love to understand how something works inside and out. It's like I look at an app or a piece of software that I'm supposed to test and I think of it as a puzzle and I like to pull all the pieces apart and figure out how do these pieces go together? Can this piece go in another spot other than the one it's supposed to be designated as its location and fig- and like okay well why doesn't it fit there like or why does it fit there why does it can it fit in more than one space i just it makes me stupidly happy you mentioned that you were you were like i'm going to be a developer and then ibm co-op QAs for me. This is awesome. Have have you ever thought about like maybe being a developer or designer? Because I know like with QA, it's like you you go through all these scenarios a thousand times, and you you are firsthand almost like a user. You're using the app, um, or even a product manager where you've wanted to do anything like that. Of the three, the one that I seriously most considered doing is probably a developer because in my mind that's what I went to school for and that's what I thought I wanted to do. And so even after IBM, when I went to Constant Contact, I toyed with it. I spent time working with the developer there and just trying to sort of dabble in it. But ultimately, I realized I just really enjoy what I do. I love the problem solving. I love the level of understanding that I believe is required. That I, And just knowing something so well, like, it's not even just about domain knowledge. It's about the ability to develop that domain knowledge. <laughs> and that just, and you can do that as a product manager and, I, and a designer and developer too. Don't, don't get me wrong. But I feel like as QA, I dabble a little bit in all of those things instead of being one or the other. I find that appealing because I'm not sitting there every day just pressing the same keys and executing the same test case over and over again. I I'm changing it because the product is changing. I guess I just am in love with QA. I think after after Constant Contact, I never really thought about it again, especially when I realized if I wanted to sort of dive into, you know, more development-geared skills that I could do that with automation. Like, that really sort of cemented it for me. Yeah, because you can drop into locust.io every once in a while and get your fill of of coding. That was a quick turnaround, and I actually feel like I should probably write a blog post about that because... It was quick, and it ended up yielding something that we that made a difference. Oh, that bug! Oh my gosh, I'm writing Python too. Oh, you went away, and I'm stuck. And I'm assigned this Py. I was like, Python. I haven't done that since I helped my kid on it six months ago. <laughs> we figured it out. So, what's what's one thing you would tell developers to like make them more easy to deal with and just 
what will be helpful for us to know to work better with you and other QA folks? I would tell them just don't underestimate the open dialogue concept that I mentioned at the beginning. Because in the past, and I and I I know this is not every organization. Sometimes the that old school mentality of the silo, it's dev, then QA, is still a thing. And I just don't, I think there's a mistake in thinking of it that way or behaving that way. The QA is, they have value. They can help with reducing your churn. Just having a conversation with them and not underestimating that they might be looking at a problem in a way that you aren't that will help you solve a problem and just talking to them and building that rapport. I love when I can just talk to someone and say, so I noticed the following and I just give them a list and, and say, but I think it's all the same root cause. You know, can we work through this? Can we talk through this? Or are we sure that this code is developed, is deployed correctly? Cause I can't, I'm still seeing the same problem. Like, can we talk through this? It reduces the churn in terms of oh, I'm going to open a bug or I'm reopening this bug. And then there's this whole back and forth and context gets missed. And it becomes way more expensive in terms of the development cost. And it sounds like so basic and elementary, but I've been in situations where there's this like wall up and I hate that. And so I make it my mission to sort of tear it down. I just like to build a rapport with the people that I'm working with. And it's not even just like developer QA, it's design, it's product management, it's all of those things because you were trying to synthesize and bring it all together. And just having a two minute conversation and not just posting a comment in a ticket. Yeah, it's important for developers. I think you and I have worked a few times where there's this weird bug on the project and I'm just like, all right, let's just go through. This is what it's <laughs> this is what it's supposed to be doing. It's right. checking this, it's making sure is this person eligible for that, and, and then you go, wait, oh, you're doing this check. I I didn't even know that that was occurring underneath the covers. And then that gives you that like aha moment. Oh, it's because over here I checked this checkbox that normally wouldn't have been checked. Right. And then sometimes too, I think you've said to me before, like, have you done this? And it turns out that it's a user. I did something wrong. And if I had just not thought to stop and ask or the other way around, there would have been maybe a ticket and like the whole rabbit hole would have gone down. We would have gone down trying to fix something that wasn't actually an issue. So developers out there. Just shoot a line out to the person. And QA people, just shoot a line out. Ask a quick question. Don't just file that bug. <laughs> just double check first. What was your biggest oopsie story where you like realized, oh no, we just went to production and I just found this thing? Or wh- what do you got? Okay, this is where I have to say just one. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I could think of more than one. The best one that fits into the example that you just gave was... One of the startups I worked at had a legacy version of the app and a new one, and they hadn't finished migrating the majority of their users from the old to the new. And I'm testing something that's in the new, the new version. And I signed off on it, and we do a release, and then someone starts to say, oh, I can't do this in the old app. And I still remember I was sitting at my desk, and I thought, oh, expletive, I didn't check that. And I panicked and I start checking out the old app and lo and behold, it's totally broken. Like that one key feature, it's not the whole app, but this one thing that sort of is like the stepping stone for the whole workflow, totally broken. And like it hanged, it was was just not working. And my manager, who's also my mentor, this was the second time I worked for him, is just looking at me. He was like, you are killing me. (laughs) like the worst 
Actually, now that I think about it, most of my best oopsie stories are one of the times that I worked for him. I don't know if that says anything about him or me, but so that was a big oopsie. And so we had to do a hot fix that same afternoon because obviously not being able to complete a workflow in the old app and most users are still on the old app was really not good. So who had to tell development that uh, this was there? Was it you or was it the manager? They already knew because my manager was not a quiet person. I owned up to it. I was like, oh, that was me. And that was really me. And I, I apologized profusely and I felt guilty about it for a while and to the point where I was super paranoid about checking the old and the new until I got more comfortable and just realized I need to ask more questions about what actually was changed and if it would impact, if it was common code between the new and the old and what the impact would be. That was not my best moment as a QA. <laughs> well, we all have those moments where yeah. we go, oopsie. Oh, that was a big oopsie. Like half the development team was like stopped and like on a fire drill and then it turned out it was just because I was an idiot. What are your philosophies on QA, automated versus manual or, you know, testing the back end or not testing the back end? So I spent a good chunk of my career not testing front end, actually testing the back end. And so I think there is a, a, a lot of merit to it. Believe that you sort of have to think about what the purpose of the feature is that you're trying to test. And I don't see a harm in testing the backend to make sure that that works, I guess, for lack of a better word, an elementary level. But you still have to test it once it's consumed by whoever is actively going to make requests of it. It's different purpose. You have different goals in mind. For automated versus manual, I think sometimes people assume that because that I am not a fan of automated testing. And that is actually not True, I do believe that there is a time and a place for automated testing. The common refrain that I've heard a lot in the places that I've worked is that automation can replace manual testing. And I believe that you can have automated testing, but it should not be considered as a replacement for manual testing. I think it's healthiest to have both because automated testing can be very brittle, expensive from a maintenance perspective. If you have to make any sort of adjustments to it, writing the test itself is probably not all that expensive or time consuming. It's the infrastructure, the harness, and all the bits and pieces that allow it to run without any human intervention that can be the time consuming and expensive part. And while the test scripts themselves can be expensive for maintenance, as my first mentor said, you can't skate on if it's not frozen. You're writing tests that will eventually that will require maintenance immediately, and so you're spending all your time maintaining something instead of actually using it as a testing approach. And that's not what you're just you're spending more time learning about the test harness or your infrastructure and the tools that are you're using than the actual application itself. With the automated test, once they start going off the rails, like you do, you're like, oh, these tests failed the smoke test. 90% of the time, you're going to be like, all right, we'll just shut it off. It's because the dev did this weird thing and we weren't ready for it. And we need to just keep going because it's the very end of the, the process. I think one of the companies I worked with, they had all of these automated tests. They had a dedicated automation team and they were trying to get the rest of the QA to start actively participating. But People leave companies, and but the work doesn't leave. The test suites stay. And people couldn't tell the next person what those tests were. And You're carrying all these tests, and nobody knew what any of them did. And so they were failing, and the goal was to get to 100% green. And people were trying to fix these old tests, and nobody knew what they did. People would ask questions like, oh, well, what is, is, 
do we still have this feature? Like, what is this test doing? And people couldn't answer the question or they'd spent all this time trying to figure it out. And it turned out it was an obsolete test, but we were carrying it for like six months. <laughs> time and a place for it. It is something definitely to be leveraged. It's something that can be super helpful. You just really need to be mindful of what your purpose is and what what problem it's going to help you solve and really understanding what you're trying to test. Like know that before. Don't just go into it with like, I'm going to do 100% automation. It's going to save us all this time and all this money. It probably won't. Here at the Ship It Podcast, we end every episode with picks where people recommend different things that they're experiencing or using right now that they want to share with other people. So Tiffany, what do you have for your pick? There's a show that I just recently started watching called Diagnosis on Netflix. I found it by accident, and it's a show about the physician who was the consultant for, oh gosh, it was a Fox TV show about the doctor who solves really um, difficult um, medical cases. She writes the column for the New York Times, and she crowdsurfs people's cases. They haven't found a diagnosis, but they have these chronic issues and every episode, she features a different case that she's written about in her column. And I haven't finished it yet, but I it's so fascinating. All the different people who have medical backgrounds, people who don't have medical backgrounds, but they themselves or someone that they're close to have experienced the same symptoms that are being highlighted. And they provide these theories or explanations as to what this person is experiencing in an effort to help them get a diagnosis and hopefully make their lives a little bit easier. And I've just been really into it because I love the analysis part of it and how they approach a problem. So it's like uh, Dr. House. Yes, it was House. Thank you. I couldn't remember it. Hugh Laurie. I could remember the actor's name, but I could not remember. That's That show was so good. I'll, I want my doctor to be Dr. House. I know. My doctor is like, I can barely get a hold of him. And he's like, you're fine. Oh, my God. I'm like, I no, but I have this weird. No, you're fine. Just right, do you want a test? Fine. Go get a test. <laughs> okay, you're fine. Had all these tests done. The the doctor that I saw was like, "Oh, maybe it's this. It could be this. Uh, you should talk with your doctor." And I wrote to him, and he's like, "Okay, sounds like everything's good. Um, stay safe. <laughs> stay safe. That's not what I'm looking for. I'm an anxious person. I want to hear like I want some good stuff. I want some meds. I want some diagnoses. Let's go. You should um, watch this show. Then I think you would enjoy it. In this episode, my pick. Uh, I just finished the first season for All Mankind. Uh, it is a show on Apple TV Plus about the space race, but it's as if the space race um, kind of went a different route. So I don't want to spoil it, but I think trailers kind of show this. The Russians get to the moon first. And instead of like, you know how we you know, did a few Apollo missions afterwards? Mm-hmm. And then in 1972, we were like, all right, we're out. We got up here. We're good. It's not that. The space race continues. And so it, it goes into this like 10 episodes. It goes into... What might have happened if the space race continued? And huh. uh, I had been watching it with my son, but I was tired of watching it with him because he's unreliable and joining me to watch a show. And so I just, <laughs> I just powered through and finished it myself. It was, it was really, really good. And season two, I think they just started filming this past week. So uh, that is my pick. Tiffany, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. And, you know, you didn't have to wear a mask for the entire episode. 